following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Please turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 6, 1 Timothy 6 at verse 6. We're on a three-week study, sub-series on spiritual seduction. The associate pastors felt and thought that one of the great trials of living as a believer in the West is the constant pressure of being pressed into the world's mold. So we're considering this theme these three weeks. We're in part two of this series Here, as I read from God's holy word, but godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction." For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. May God bless the reading and hearing of His Word. In a recent edition of World Magazine, Marvin Olowski reports on a 475-mile road trip he recently took along with his wife, Susan, Not a road trip along the scenic California coast or the beautiful parts of Maine or the national parks of the West, but actually a road trip along the Pan-American Highway in Central America, visiting Compassion International child sponsorship sites along the way. They made their way through Nicaragua, Honduras, El Salvador, and Guatemala, traveling through areas labeled by the tourist guidebooks as dangerous. Use extreme caution. Do not travel after dark. The article describes families touched by the love of Christ through local churches and the work of Compassion International. One of those families is that of Alexandro and Anna Alvarado and their two small children who live in a small, one-room, cement-block house. The house has a little extension on the side with metal sides to it, where Anna also bakes tortillas over a fire. They have a propane cook stove, a treadle sewing machine, and they have a hammock where their two-year-old sleeps. They even have a working light bulb inside and one outside. Alexandro is thankful to have his job selling milk house to house for which he earns $100 a month. But as I read the article, it was a quote from Anna that struck me. She said, we are poor, but I lack nothing. This couple have been Christians for four years. 
But it was thought-provoking to read about their lives, especially because certainly as we read these articles, we can't help but think of how materially wealthy we are by comparison. But to read about their lives and to see this glimpse of true contentment, even in what we would consider to be very serious poverty, and a, a degree of contentment that is certainly not a natural reaction to the seduction of this fallen world in every culture, in every nation, in every part of the world. Whether you live in Central American poverty or whether you are living the dream, so to speak, in the United States, the Bible calls believers to contentment in God, and the world tempts us to covet. That's the theme that we want to look at this morning. Here in 2014, we would say that there are still some remnants of conscience in America about some sins, maybe murder, we would think is still wrong, and stealing, and certainly wasting the earth's resources would be maybe a sin of modern day that would be near the top of the list. But covetousness, even if it's on the list, is nowhere near the top of the list. In fact, isn't that the the underlying motivation of most commercials and things like that that we see? But the problem with all desire that's not oriented to a right relationship to God through Jesus Christ is that it never satisfies. But contentment is a fundamental character grace that believers have through Jesus Christ and are growing in, and that's deeply linked to our love for God through Jesus Christ. Our first main point this morning is to ask the question, what is covetousness? In spite of our culture's message to the contrary, covetousness or greed is clearly sin. The Tenth Commandment says, thou shalt not covet, and it lists things in that day and age that people weren't covet. Colossians 3.5, Ephesians 5.5 say and tell us that covetousness is idolatry. Covetousness is a form of worship. It's wanting something without regard for God. It's desire that's not submitted to God, and so it's never fully satisfied because it's not brought under submission to the will of God. And of course, we really can't think of covetousness and sin without thinking, if, you're, if you know your Bibles at all, about what Jesus talks about. You can't serve God and money. You can't have your treasure in both places at the same time. Look at 1 Timothy 6. 6. But godliness with contentment is great gain. What's so great about it is that contentment is satisfied in God. And it stands in stark contrast to what we read in verse 9. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, to many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. We could define covetousness in this way. It's desiring something so much that you lose your contentment in God. Or you could turn it around. It's losing your contentment in God so that you start to seek contentment elsewhere. I think of Hebrews chapter 13 where 
we see these two ideas linked again there. It says, keep your life free from the love of money. Isn't that the same theme as 1 Timothy 6? Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. How can we be content with what we have? The Bible is telling us there, it's because God is with us. And so we can find our ultimate contentment in him. It's similar to Philippians chapter 4 where Paul has finally gotten to the point at Philippians at the end of the book of thanking the Philippians for their love gift to him to help support him. But he wanted to thank them in such a way as to make it clear that he's not greedy, he's not covetousness, uh, he's not coveting what they have, and, and he's not what we might say is a televangelist pulling their heartstrings so they'll send him more. And so he talks about his contentment. He says, not that I am speaking in terms of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. He goes on to talk about how he's learned that. Whatever the circumstances might be, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. We're getting new garage doors this week. We've had the same garage doors for many years. They're 30 years old. And, uh, you know, they're rusting away. I have to keep applying every ounce of uh, relative lack of mechanical skill to these doors. And, you know, duct tape and everything I can with the springs. And uh, the guy came out the other week to look at our doors. And he looked at me and he said, after I pushed the button you know, to make the garage door go up, he said, well, no one's going to sneak in through these doors, are they? I said, no. You're like, crank, crank, crank. Well, the past few months, Patty and I, when we drive around, have been looking at garage doors. We don't really notice garage doors. There are really nice garage doors. They've got windows, they've got hinges and new styles. And also, there are houses with not just two garage doors, but two and a half or three. After the early service this morning, someone told me about a house we'll have to check out with five garage doors. Wow. Now, in the 50s, if you had a garage door at all, you had one. I went back and looked over the past many years of our marriage and thought, well, for the first six years, we didn't have a garage. Then we, the next six years, we had a garage at the church where we lived, but it was far away from the house, so we didn't park our car in it very much. And then the next house, for eight years, we had a garage that someone had built a workbench in the front, a single garage, so we couldn't put our station wagon in the garage. So that was about 18 years' worth. And now when we moved here, we were in luxury. We had a two-car garage with push buttons. I haven't gotten quite over that feeling. Any guy knows how much they love their garage. And, but maybe I'd like a two-and-a-half-car garage. Maybe three. And look at those garages. They're extra big. I think you get the point I'm trying to make here. Covetousness just sneaks up on us in all these kind of ordinary, everyday kind of ways. And the Bible doesn't really tell us how many garage doors we're allowed to have or not have. (laughs) Well, my second point then links to the dangers of covetousness. Here in 1 Timothy 6, we see a number of dangers with it. And um, we see five here, particularly under this point. One is that covetousness never fully satisfies. In Luke 12, Jesus warns us, Beware of all covetousness, for a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. We all know that's true. We can eat a Thanksgiving meal 
and just feel full to busting. And no, we maybe ate a little bit too much, but maybe around bedtime we're ready for a turkey sandwich and a snack again, right? It just doesn't fully satisfy forever. Or we notice here in 1 Timothy that covetousness is a snare. It says that covetousness is a temptation and a snare, and it, it plunges people into ruin and destruction. It's interesting that in the parable of the soils, Jesus talks about the, the good seed that is sown on the earth, the Word of God. And what, one of the things that stops it from growing is thorns. And he says, thorns are the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches. Notice how riches deceive us. And the desires for other things. That's just an open-ended statement about all kinds of desires that we have that so easily go astray. It may be desires for good things, but it turns into covetousness. Covetousness is the desire for other things in competition with the Word of God. And it's interesting that the parable ends by Jesus saying, take heed how you listen to the Word of God because our hearts are often not prepared to receive it. The world's seduction shows up in this danger of discontentment that our spiritual life is choked in a sense. And we must never see this seduction and the the forces of the world as something neutral. Not at all. If we think that everything is fine, you can be sure you're being carried along by that seductive force. So we need to fight it with faith in Christ. The third danger we see in 1 Timothy is that covetousness is a root of all kinds of evils. And when Paul talks about that, he means the kind of heart that finds contentment in money and not in God is the kind of heart that produces all kinds of other evils. You cannot covet and produce good fruit at the same time. Covetousness is a breeding ground for a thousand other sins. It's like he's saying. And so we're warned to flee from it. Fourth, covetousness lets you down in the end. Verse 7 talks about this. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. He's talking about when we die. And we all know this. Everyone knows that when you die, you can't take it with you. But he's saying, are we living that way? It doesn't mean you can't have things, and I hope it doesn't mean you can't get new garage doors if you need them. But he's saying at the greatest, or what we might consider the greatest crisis of your life, there when you're about to die, when you need contentment and hope and security more than any other time, your money and possessions will let you down. The things of this life are not sufficient. They are fair-weather friends. It reminds us of Ebenezer Scrooge, doesn't it, who amassed so much. And when the ghost of Christmas future comes to him, doesn't say any words, and just leads him around to see what may come of his life. And you see that scene. I always remember that scene where the maids are stripping the body of Ebenezer Scrooge of everything that he had left. There's no, it's, it's all letting him down completely in the end. And the fifth warning is that in the end, covetousness destroys the soul. Verse 9, at the end, 
harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. He's not talking about your business being ruined, although covetousness may ruin your business or your finances or your family or your marriage. That's true. It may. But he's talking about spiritual ruin. He's talking about covetousness leading to spiritual death. Now, we know for anyone in Christ, ultimately, it doesn't take us to that ultimate spiritual destruction of hell. The believer is kept by the power of God, and we rejoice in that. We know that Jesus keeps us to the end. But still, Scriptures talk about how sin brings a degree of spiritual death. It affects our daily fellowship with God, not our justification, not our standing in Christ, but it affects us spiritually. It's similar to Romans 8.13, where Paul talks about, uh, he says, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. How do Christians die if they live according to the flesh? He's not talking about eternal death. He says the tendency of sin is spiritual death. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. It doesn't mean you save yourself. It's talking about the tendency as we put to death sinful self and trust in Christ, we experience greater spiritual life and joy, fellowship with God. So the point is, covetousness is dangerous. True contentment is great gain. And that's because it is a fruit of that godliness that springs from faith in Christ. But thirdly now, let me consider some applications to help us fight for true contentment. What can we say about this? If we, if we know what the Bible says is true, the first application is this question to ask yourself. Am I aware of my discontentment? Am I aware of the tendencies to covetousness in my heart in my situation, with the influences on me? Am I aware of how the world is constantly trying to squeeze me into its mold? Maybe for a 17-year-old, that's different than for a 30-year-old, that's different than a 50-year-old, then it's different for an 80-year-old, but you can be sure the world is pressing each one of us. You never graduate beyond the temptations of the world. It's interesting in Luke 12 when these two brothers come to Christ, and one of them says, Jesus, work this out. Tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And Jesus refuses to be their judge. But what does he do? He speaks to the man about his heart. He says, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of covetousness or greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And maybe this man was right. Maybe his brother was wrong and and doing him wrong. But Jesus was saying, okay, but where is your heart? Some of you may have already been to the beach this year. I know a lot of you like to go there. And have you ever been swimming when there's a strong undertow? I remember as a boy, if I'd be out there in the waves, I had to keep my eye on the lifeguard stand because often the undertow would kind of take you sideways and you'd get outside of the flags that are supposed to, you're supposed to stay inside the flags and you You didn't want to have the lifeguard to have to whistle you back in. Of course, undertow also takes people out to sea. That's even worse. And you don't want to be carried out into the ocean and drowned. But the point is, 
You can swim in the ocean and maybe not be aware of it until you drifted pretty far. You have to be aware of the danger of being carried away. Do you see what a powerful undertow our culture has for worldliness and covetousness for each one of us? Yes, it affects us in different ways and different times. It's a powerful undertow. And the problem with guarding against covetousness is that there is not a scriptural prescription for exactly what you and I may or may not have. There's not a divinely inspired list of what we can have. And if we have it, then we know we're fine. That's making a legalistic attempt to fix things. The issue is not possessions per se, but our attitude and attachment to them. So we have to ask ourselves questions like this. Am I too preoccupied with earthly things? How much am I preoccupied with things in my life compared to the things of God? Bigger and better house, cars, garage doors, annuities, clothes, iPhones, tablets, TVs, hobbies, food, sex, furniture, my appearance, my yard, my garden, entertainment, texting, tweeting, Facebook, eating out, movies, sports, the World Cup, the NFL, the NBA, working out. I just started to make a list, and I thought I'd better stop. I don't have any more room on the page. Did any of those strike you as some things that may have the attachments of your heart more than Christ at times? And maybe none of the above are really wrong in their right place, But what about the Word of God? What about praying? What about worship? What about serving others? What about hospitality, Tucker spoke about? What about concern for the kingdom of God? Isn't it interesting that we pray the Lord's Prayer almost every week? Do you stop to think about the petition, Thy kingdom come, comes before the petition, Give us this day our daily bread? I think that's to teach us something about having a concern for the kingdom of God as a high priority in our life. And then ask yourself, how affected am I when I lose or don't get things that are on my list of things I want so much? How much am I affected by that? Yes, to lose something, like if your house would burn down, there would be a real valid and appropriate sense of grief so much connected to your family and your life. I'm not speaking against genuine loss and grief, but I'm asking, beyond normal grief, does it reveal our sinful attachment to earthly things? And the Lord is weaning us from these things. Can I still experience joy in God when God doesn't give me what I may want? Or am I like a child who's in a bad mood for half a day because I didn't get the toy that was on the commercial? You could ask it this way, how often do things get in the way of truly loving and serving the people in my life, the people that God has me living close to in my family, in my marriage, in my work, in my school? How often does covetousness, a root sin, come out in bad fruit in our relationships. And maybe a child messes up something and you explode. Or someone puts a ding into your car. Wow, look out. Notice the way a desire may be ruling us, and it shows up 
in our relationships. And when we see this kind of bad fruit, we can't just fix the relationship. We have to go to God, confess our heart and what's wrong there, and pray for transforming grace that the power of Jesus Christ that gives us new life would be worked out in the daily situations of our life. Well, that's one half of the application. The other half of it is this. Am I growing in my contentment in God? We have to fight covetousness by faith in Jesus Christ and contentment in God. And let's get back to the undertow example. If you are out there in the waves and you're being carried out to sea, what you really need, well, one of the main things that could work is that you need a life preserver thrown to you that's tied onto the lifeguard stand. And you could hold on to that and maybe they could pull you in against the undertow. I like that analogy because I think of the rope being the promises of God, the Word of God linked to the object, the lifeguard stand, which is God Himself, the sufficient work of Jesus Christ for sinners to bring us home, to anchor us in God Himself. It's interesting that later in 1 Timothy 6, in verse 17, Paul says a little bit more about this. He says, as for the rich in this present age, and that probably includes most of us here, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Our anchor, our hope is to be in God Himself. The antidote to worldliness, you see, is the cross of Jesus Christ. Chris read that word of assurance from Galatians six fourteen. But far be it from me to boast or to glory, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says that interesting phrase. Did you stop to think about it? By which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Every Christian fundamentally has already been crucified to the world, and the world's been crucified to us. There's this fundamental radical change in our relationship to the world. We aren't at home in this fallen, sinful world. Many ways we feel like we still are, but the Bible is saying because of the cross, because of what Jesus did, we are not at home. It's been crucified to us. It's only through the cross of Jesus Christ and His resurrection power that we are enabled more and more to resist the seductiveness of this world. It's in Jesus' cross that we are given forgiveness. It's in the cross of Christ we are given a new power to overcome sin. And it's the love of Jesus Christ poured out on the cross and poured out into our hearts that is the attraction. It's like the magnet that draws our hearts away from the empty and deadly pleasures of worldliness. Here's a quote that I found this week. Jesus Christ is most important. We must fight worldliness because it dulls our affections for Christ and distracts our attention from Christ. Worldliness is so serious because Christ is so glorious. In other words, the author is saying, yes, worldliness is a sin, but the big thing is knowing Jesus Christ, the glory of Jesus Christ. And worldliness is like a secondary sin in that it draws our attraction from Him. 
You can't fight the battle against greed and covetousness only halfway. You can't just put off covetousness without putting on fellowship and communion with Christ and knowing anew the love of Jesus Christ and increasing in faith and joy and contentment in Him. So ask yourself, am I satisfied more and more with the Lord Himself? Maybe we need to be praying for that. Am I thankful for the material blessings God has poured out into me? Thankfulness is a great antidote. Am I dependent on Jesus Christ to change me? And I focus more on the kingdom of God and His work in the world. We need to trust that Christ will transform our hearts. And we need to say with Anna, I am poor, but I lack nothing, no matter what my circumstances might be in this present life. Amen. Father, thank you that we have the true riches in Jesus. We think about the fact that no condemnation now we dread. Jesus and all in Him is mine. What treasure, what riches. Thank you that when we survey the wondrous cross, when we think of the cross, it makes all of our earthly gains and treasures to be seen for what they really are. Please inscribe that word in our hearts that we would be changed by it this week. In Christ's mighty name we pray. Amen.